three, two, one, go. We're live. What happened in China before she? I'll tell you what happened in China before she. Drugs, money, and Mao. But not in that order. Mao came before the money. This is Retrace, segment number 48. Listen, disclaimer. I should not be your history. I should not be your historian of China. The history of China is long. It's Saturday, November 12th, 2022. And China has been here for a long time as of today. China as a civilization, obviously the geography, everybody's been here for, you know, parts of the planet and the humans go back over 100,000 years, millions if you're talking about primates, but China, the civilization, a continuous civilization with historical written records and more or less the same script, three and a half thousand years, oldest one, oldest continuing, there's a lot of history in China, it's 11 p.m., 8 p.m. Pacific, 4 a.m. in London, 12 noon in Beijing, where they keep going forward with their history, with their story. 3 p.m. in Sydney. All right. So, of course, you shouldn't be getting your history lesson on China from a podcaster. Of course, if you are going to violate that rule that I just gave you that you should follow and continue listening to this, you should understand that we are not going to go back to the warring states. We are not going to go back to the Qing dynasty. We're not going to go back to the anything dynasty. We're going to attempt to start at the Opium Wars, which, let me just say, there is a dynasty at that point, but I'm not going to tell you which one. I think it was the Qing, but it's... Anyway, I'm not your historian for this. What? Why are we even talking about China? It's because we have a hypothesis about China. And because China's a big thing going on in the world, you can't... I don't need to finish that thought. The hypothesis is the most important thing, okay? And it's that... <laughs> I put the wrong one here. <laughs> no, I didn't. H4, China. The U.S. is no longer the only superpower. War is likely. That's our hypothesis number four, retrace 17. We laid out a bunch of hypotheses about what's going on out there, and that's hypothesis number four. So meanwhile in China... Well, we, we, what's going on in China now sort of started in more or less its current form, let's say, in the late 2010s, like maybe somewhere between 2005, 2009, but really when Xi Jinping took over in 2012. So what happened up to that point? We have to have some sort of simple way of thinking about this. We don't have to go back to the beginning of history, but we do have to go back a little bit. Drugs, then Mao, then money. The Opium Wars, the Century of Humiliation, the, civil, the Chinese Civil War, the Mao period, then the Reformers. That's what happened before Xi. That's what happened before Xi Jinping took over. And he is a continuation of what that all was. But let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, what is China? We need a way of thinking about what China is. We've already talked about it on the last segment. I'm going to give it to you again one more time. It's the most people with the most history, mostly doing well, except lately, and by lately we mean 19th and 20th century. Um, not in the last few years, obviously, or even few decades. Now making a comeback. It's 1.4 billion people striving, intense competition in business, in love, in life. Government by a single party. 
It has risen in a U.S. world, a world dominated by the United States, and they are speaking Chinese the whole time. That's a model. That's a good model of China. Our hypothesis about China is that the U.S. is no longer the only superpower in war is likely. If you count the number of boats, Chinese boats and American boats, i.e. the navies, they've already passed us, I think. I think they, they already have more boats, do they? Oh, crikey, what? I don't know. I, I forget. I'll tell you later. Um, but economically, depending on how you measure it, basically if you measure with the exchange rate, um, they are still behind us and economically, like GDP-wise. And if you, if you do purchasing power parity, they're ahead of us. I won't get into all that. Anyway, they are number two or number one, depending on which thing you're measuring. So they're a superpower. War is likely. And I, this, is, this comes from the Retrace 17 notes. I cite Allison, Pillsbury, Spalding, Kilcullen, Lee, 2018, Osnos. I cite a lot of people to support that. There are sub-components to that hypothesis. The U.S. is declining. I cite Orlov, Putman, uh, Putnam, Chomsky, Reed on taxes. Um, China is rising. Maybe you don't believe that. Well, I cite Allison, Mitter, Pillsbury, all this stuff. And then I throw in a little thing there. Civilizational collapse of the U.S. and or China and or Russia will happen within our lifetimes. I don't know why I put that in there, but... It, it seemed then, and it still sort of seems like, hey, that's kind of a prediction that might come true. Civilizational collapse. Things are changing fast. Why? Hypothesis 12. Computer control is at least part of it. All right. So that's hypothesis number four. It's number four. I was going to say a different number because I wrote it wrong in my notes, but it's number four, I promise. Promise. Um, let's answer that question, what happened in China before she? Let's get a bit more specific than just drugs, money, and Mao. Why do I say it like that? The money came after Mao. Mao couldn't get the money. That's one of the things that led the reformers to be. They didn't, it didn't work. The, the five-year plans, the Great Leap Forward, they're trying. Okay, so let's, let's do this one piece at a time. Um, what do we, how do we know this stuff that we're about to say? Historians and the articles that they write in the literature that reaches us. So we don't actually know it. Like when you read a historian, you're not seeing in the past, you're, you're, you're seeing black and white scribbles on a page that might be, that might lead you astray. And there's no way for us to know for sure. Um, we, we, we could build a whole trust model around how to read historians, and we're not going to do that right now. What we do know, though, is what is presently reported, or at least we know that a lot more assuredly. For example, the century of humiliation is a phrase used in the West as translated from China to refer to the early, mid-1800s to, to 1949, the end of the, uh, the Chinese Civil War. And so we're going to take historians at face value, not like a bunch of them. Like, I've just got one good one. Like I said, I'm not your historian. Like, I don't, I don't know this stuff that well. I've just sort of, I've been absorbing it for years now. And I've just brushed up on all of the chronology and facts today. John Key's History of China, 
and then basically my world book. Like I could go into a lot of different books, but it's sort of tiresome to spread out all this effort on onto a different a bunch of different books. Like we're I'm not I'm not gonna say anything controversial. I'm just trying to get a sense in your mind and in my own mind of what we're dealing with and what they're dealing with. We're talking about a a war between China and the United States. And really anything in the in the list of hypotheses is is you know, China is germane to it. I mean China is the new player on the stage the the new player on a on a stage that had a soloist for 70 for 50 years before they before they climbed their way up there no no, no. it was it was a duet until the fall of the berlin berlin wall it's okay so it was a duet and then it was solo in the 90s soloist in the 90s and 10s and then china has has risen they are relevant to everything we would talk about, but the most important thing that they could be relevant to is a war. So what about China? What happened before Xi? And then we'll talk tomorrow about what's happened since and during Xi. This, we'll call that the present era because that, that'll make sense when, we, when we've had a, a brief glimpse backward. All right. So basically, the Opium Wars, um, there were two of them... Um, one with Britain, one with France a few years later, several years later, uh, early to mid-1800s. And they kicked off, you know, what you might call the century of humiliation. So I was reading John Key on the open wars today because I just knew the term. Like, I didn't really know, like, what started it. What started it? Okay, watch this. Watch me do historical analysis. I'm going to do it right in front of you. Well, basically, it was two drug deals. <laughs> it was two drug deals. So the Chinese were selling us some drugs, and we really love those drugs. And and by us, I mean you know the West. It was basically Britain, and then Britain was you know was getting to the U.S. colonies, or to the to the um, colonies, and then then to the new, new newly formed United States. That drug, this drug. I'm going to tell you what drug it was. Yeah, I know you want to know what drug they were selling us, and then. There was an imbalance in in trade between Britain and and China. China didn't Britain didn't have anything that China wanted. They they just had trinkets and whatnot, and they had wool, but the, it was warm where they were docking their ships and trying to sell things. So 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 all the silver that Britain had in this in this trade was was ending up on one side of the of the line. You know, they were getting the drug and then paying for it but they there was no reciprocity well the drug was tea okay tea was a super big deal back then still is in britain and australia and i don't know about canada are they big into tea anyway the chinese had it and they were selling it by the boatload and they didn't want anything they didn't want to buy anything from the the british who were buying it and it wasn't just the british but the first opium war was with the british Long story short, the British figure out that there's opium in India. We can sell that. Smoking opium started like in Taiwan and that, that sort of spread. And suddenly there was a market created for opium, the basis of heroin. And unlike tea, which is sort of stimulative and enlivening to a society... Uh, opium is the opposite. It destroys it. So we go from an imbalance of trade to 
okay, now we're even, but look at the effects of these drugs. One of us is hooked on tea, and the other one is hooked on opium, poppies. Um, I don't know my drugs that well. Poppies, poppies are the basis of opium, aren't they? Whew. I don't know my drugs that well. All right, so um, after that, it just sounds like the it sounds a lot like the U.S. drug war in in Central and South America, uh, except the it's not exactly the same, but a lot of like the reaction to it is the same. You, you have people who want to prohibit it. They want to execute the users. They want to, they try all these things. And, and then, you know, various things don't work. And then people have like very serious people have strong economic interests. Once the money starts flowing in preventing the, you know, the, the like regulation or decriminalization and that sort of thing. It all, it was all happening. You have to remember, like, it sounds like a long time ago, the 1800s. It was not long ago. It was, it, it's, it's in, in a lot of senses, it's different. But it was just as complicated and busy and, and all that as, as things are today. And, and there were just as many relevant details back then as there would be today for some, some big deal thing happening. So there's no way to really simplify it beyond a certain point of approximation. And, and I think that's a good way of thinking. It's a dr- it was a drug war. Um. And, and so here's, okay, so tea and opium, two drugs, very different, Western. Okay, yeah, so, so this is where the difference is made is, is, is who wins the war. The Western country, it wasn't just Britain, it, you know, other countries got involved in it. There was a later one that was, you know, sort of called out separately with uh, France. Um, and... And the Western countries keep won those wars and then kept winning other, you know, and then they had they were China was uh, fighting with Japan and they kept losing all of these wars. Why technology? Technology is why China lost all these wars that amounted to and, and had to sign all of these treaties, sort of, you know, coercively sign these treaties that opened up their markets to businesses that were ready to cash in and extract wealth from a country that was not in any position to reciprocate or, or preserve its wealth or, or um, protect itself. Uh, maybe it's because China, you know, the Great Wall, sort of they were too insulated. They, they, they walled themselves off. I don't know. My history of China is, is, is totally inadequate uh, going further back. But anyway, the fact is the Western countries mopped the floor with lots of different countries as they spread outward with their navies in the eight, in the 17 and 1800s really from the 1400s but you know this was this was that it was technology they want they didn't want to lose the opium wars <laughs> they didn't want their people to be addicted to drugs they didn't want their societies to be falling apart they wanted to go back to the old days where they could just sell that tea and get that silver man and have the peace um but but that to me is it's you know However, the Chinese people see the opium wars, which really kicked off the century of humiliation, um, that glance at it, you know, and, and John, John Key agrees with my world book encyclopedia historians, and, and it just makes sense to me that this, this is ultimately an economic, of economic origin, you know, 
and a dramatic imbalance of payments leads people to make decisions. These market incentives can push people to do things, smuggle opium in, work under the table, off the books, fly by night, armed whatever, to get the sale made because people want something. What do they want? Well, they want better. That's what this is all about. That's what, when you're getting high on opium, you're you're doing it because we talked about addiction two days ago. Um, because in the moment, you 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 think it's better than what else you could do, right? You want better. Now, most of the time, people don't do drugs to 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 get betterment out of life, but that happens all the time. The people selling the drugs also want better. They want money. They want they want what they can get with money. They want the power of having money just sitting around or having being able to produ- to, to generate it at, at will and in volumes arbitrary. So the, the people, the Chinese people are pursuing a better life by selling tea and socking away all the silver for a rainy day. No, I'm not going to buy your trinkets. I'm not going to buy your wool sweaters. It's hot. Get away from me. We want the better life. But then the Westerners, the British, they, those, you know, East India Company and those types, they want something better for themselves too. And you're not buying any of our stuff, but we got some drugs that we can sell to these people who can't resist. So we're going to do that. Well, no, you can't do that. That's a, no, you're not allowed to do that. All right, all right, we'll stop. And then they just kind of hand it to the guy waiting in the wings, who takes a cut, smuggles it in. Sound familiar? It's the drug war in the United States and, and in the Americas. It's not exactly the same, but it's got a lot in common with it. Everybody's pursuing a better life. It's economics. We want things. But there are finite resources. The world is filled with scarcity. The world is filled with beings that want things, preferences, desires, motivation, and then there's scarcity, and then there's economics, and suddenly you have an opium war, and then a century of humiliation, and then World War III. Hopefully not the last thing. The difference was technology. They couldn't win these wars, not just with us. A lot of European countries, they've had to sign treaties. Also, Japan ran roughshod for a while. The Chinese did not fail to notice this. Would you? I don't know what the technology was. I think it was, I mean, it was tall ships, right? It was sails and gun and, and gunpowder. <laughs> the Chinese invented writing. They invented gunpowder. These people, how mad would you be? <laughs> they show up with their ledger, you know, there's an imbalance of payments. And then they shoot you with their cannons. You must be sitting there thinking, if you have any sense of history, you're a, a Chinese living trying to live your life in the early 1800s. How unfortunate it is. It's not ironic. Maybe it's ironic. No, it's not ironic. They're using what we made to kill us, but that's how technology works. That's, it doesn't care once it's out there. It doesn't care what the original intention was. H12, computer control. Talked a lot about this. Not enough. 
They invented writing. They invented writing, right? They at least invented it independently. I think they invented it. Oh, jeez. See, this is why I should not be a historian. They definitely invented gunpowder. Technology. They did not fail to notice this. So, well, there's this bickering that starts... It's not bickering, it's horrible, but there's this bickering that starts happening in the mid-1800s between, like, lots... Within lots of countries. It's between, you know, communist, revolutionary, proletariat, Marxist-Leninist people who suddenly think, you know, capitalism and private property are the problem and are causing poverty. So what we need is an antidote to that. And the antidote is instead of an individual can own as much as, as, any, as, any, as they can possibly acquire, uh, let's say that everybody owns everything all the time. And if you're, if you're a realist and you've had some experiences, experiences in life, you know that if everybody owns a problem, then nobody owns the problem. Similarly, if everybody owns the means of production, then nobody owns the means of production. And so then you have to put it into a government and then the government controls it and then suddenly it's 1984 and you've got all the downsides of the laudable ideal of communism. Uh, it just doesn't turn out to work. Like it was worth trying, but it's been tried and it doesn't work at all. It leads to things way worse than, than capitalism. Arguably, a lot of people disagree with that, but you know, that's, I think that's a fair... Um, simplification but that was happening in China just like everywhere else after 1848 and it leads to eventually the Chinese Civil War which sort of starts around you know after World War One. I've got here 1927 to 49 it definitely ends in 49 but anyway you know the first half of the 20th century or the first the second quarter um, Civil War between the nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek, and the communists, Mao Zedong. And it's a very complicated, there's a lot of unexpected stuff that happened in that war that I'm not going to get into because I'll probably remember it wrong because I just read about it today. But um, anyway, it's interesting. I mean, the thing about Ch Chiang Kai-shek, you should think of Chiang Kai-shek. That's the guy who was on the, the capitalist, nationalist, non-communist side of the Chinese Civil War who eventually kind of lost and had to retreat to Taiwan and now Taiwan's a thriving democracy which we like and then China is a sort of totalitarian communist you know klepto state I don't know what you want to call it, but that we don't like at least you know you don't like the government of it right but that's but Chiang Kai-shek was like a jerk <laughs> he, was, he was worse than a jerk like he was a he was a despot and and when things and I don't think he was the only one Entire, I think even the whoever took over for him in the first wave in Taiwan was a despot too. But anyway, it didn't work out as cleanly as you'd think. And we supported Chiang Kai-shek against the communists. Um, but but like a lot of these 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 sort of communism and capitalism wars, um, not just the Cold War, but like before it, uh, it, it was ugly. It was you, you, you know strange bedfellows you know enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of stuff um but mao and the communists won through you know basically getting the people on their side and also having better tactics it took a long time it was like you know a couple decades of war and i don't i don't know exactly when mao came onto the scene of that but he definitely they emerged victorious although they were still fighting with japan so it wasn't like suddenly they had had the whole country they had a lot of 
the way, I think the way that Key puts it is that the People's Liberation had uh, People's Liberation Army had a lot of liberating left to do after defeating Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists and chasing them off the mainland. But anyway, so communism won out. All right, back to the betterment thing. Well, how are we going to make it better? We want a better life. We don't want to be doing opium, and we don't want to be forced to do opium or, or you know, manipulated into, tempted into it by evil drug dealers. What are we going to do? Well, what, what are the other people doing? What do the Westerners do? How do they beat us? Technology, better ships, better guns, better means of logistics, better scientific tools and instruments, navigation, better ways of, you know, calculus. How, how do we make sure that this cannonball lands right on his face? I want it to land right on his face from my boat. That's calculus. You need calculus and physics. Physics more broadly. Technology. So what does Mao do? I, the, I think the best way to understand Mao is he's, he was sort of nuts in a sort of manic way. Um, and totally devoted to modernization and power, of course. They're all devoted to power, but Mao was like manic and impulsive. Um, but his whole aim, his whole existence was about modernizing China. So you've got the Great Leap Forward, which is the second five-year plan, which killed maybe 20 to 30 million people because it led to a famine, because he was he set these enormous production targets and tried to do with agriculture what was working with industrialization and then the agriculture didn't work out and then people, the, all the peasants starved um, or maybe like half of that number starved and then the other ones died from consequences of the starvation or and then like Keyes mentions it's not you shouldn't even I mean you can't even imagine how many people weren't even born because of that starvation so the number is is it's in the tens of millions um, it just just the starve starvation victims that's the great leap forward from uh 58 to 62 and then you know i i surprisingly i, I it's surprising to me that mao kind of retreated and had to sort of admit as, as this became more widely understood in the country that he kind of had to he, he kind of had to uh back off a little bit from the from the scene because everybody kind of knew it was him but you know they didn't oust him and and um and then the Cultural Revolution, a few years later, is basically Mao getting paranoid about being either forgotten or, or, or you know, misrepresented by history, which is what he saw as happening to Stalin, or um, uh, not misrepresented, you know, judged harshly by history, or he might actually be ousted before he dies, uh, which is what happened to Khrushchev. So I'm getting all this from Keys and my memory. Um, and so he starts this paranoia campaign and he enlists children. He, he really, the whole time he's in power, he's like constantly churning up like, you know, fights and, and turmoil to, because he, he loved the way that it led to, chaos led to progress or chaos led to invention or chaos led to action and all these things. So he did that and that was what the Cultural Revolution was. It was this way of churning up things and protecting himself, but also sort of trying to rekindle the revolution and keep it, you know, keep things interesting and... And that lasted until he died in 76. Maybe 500,000 people died. These were people in the cities, though. These weren't the peasants. The, you know, the, the, the Great Leap Forward famine killed all the peasants, or killed, you know, killed peasants. 
tens of millions of them, hundreds of thousands, if not maybe up to a million in the cities. Now, the peasant thing, like a lot of people didn't know about it until it was over. There's just no, there's no reporting. They don't allow the press in. And, and whereas in the cities, everybody could see it and they, they saw this is nuts. Um, the whole world saw it. And it seems crazy putting people up on stages and stuff. Some people got killed. Keith says that um, most of the killing was like between Red Guard, you know, these these kid groups that are young people groups that were vying for power and trying to be the most revolutionary and all that stuff. So anyway, Mao, trying to modernize, kills a whole bunch of people in the form of famine and then sort of social unrest. Um, but he's now like, he's on their money now. He's on their, their government, that main government building. I forget what that's called, but you know, the one, whenever they show the communist party having a meeting, they show that building, he's on that. So they, the Chinese people are not so, I mean, they, I, they're, they're clear eyed about it. Like they admit that a lot of things that Mao did right after he died, even, even before he died, I think people were starting to acknowledge publicly like Deng Xiaoping, I think. So Deng Xiaoping comes in, actually pause on that. A couple things happened um, during that during the end of the Mao period. The UN recognized uh, the People's Republic, Ch- Ch- mainline China, communist China, uh, over Taiwan. So the, I don't know what led to that decision. I, I've heard that, but I don't remember. Anyway, this is the beginning of the whole weird state that Taiwan is in, where Taiwan is being treated by the international community like it's not a real country because they can't treat it like a real country or China will retaliate mainly in the UN, but it's like everything that's connected to the UN, everything that's global, every, anything that China... I was even reading, like, World Book, and when they didn't talk about the millions who died in the Great Leap Forward, I thought, is does China have input into this book? But I don't think, the, you know, or any leverage over this book. Like, you can't get a map, you can't get a cheap map or a, key, a cheap globe in, in the world uh, that if it shows Taiwan as a separate country, it has to show it as, like, a special administrative region of China because they're all, they're all made in China. All the cheap maps and globes are made in China. Um, so anyway, the UN recognized, basically gave up on Taiwan and decided that China was the better bet because you couldn't really you know, have both. Uh, China would not accept that, mainland China, communist China. Nixon, Richard Nixon went to China in 1972 sort of started to open up relations. Um, that's a whole complicated story. Can't really tell it because I don't know it in detail. Okay, so that's like the Mao period. The last period we're going to talk about is from then, basically the late 70s to now to, to 2012, to Xi, Xi Jinping. And it's about, to me, it's about money. It's about economic reform. Again, the Chinese people were always doing what normal people always do, which is try to make their lives better. We're doing it now. Can you feel it? Can you feel yourself doing it right now? I'm doing it. You're doing it. We're always, always, we're all always trying to make things better. But you try different things. Opium? Eh, feels good at first. But, ah, crap, now our society is falling apart. My life is destroyed. Well, this is no good. How about this? How about we all just take over all the businesses and land and coordinate through a central government to start making steel and anything else we can that's part of the, that would make us part of the 
modern global economy in the 1800s, or in the 1900s, in the mid-20th century. Let's try that. Communism. Got to give me some of that communism. Trying to make things better. Didn't work out. They didn't know they were going to have a famine. They didn't know that they were going to have a cultural revolution. Let's try some economic reform. Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao. These are all leaders, you know, total leaders or partial leaders of the country from the 70s to the 90s, the 70s, 80s, and 90s to 2000s. And it's sort of, it's, it works. It's, I mean, you know, the, the growth rate, the economic growth rate, the military, the quality of living, you know, quality of life and all that stuff, everything in China has, has just taken off like a rocket ship over that period, especially in the 90s and 2000s. It's not just the economic reform. It's also like the advent of Western technology spreading throughout the world and making everything, making all kinds of new things possible that weren't possible before coincided with this rise of China. Western companies, again, just like they were with the open, just at the beginning of and all through the, the century of humiliation, Western companies, of course, like, hey, China, we can come in and do some business with you. How about it? And the Chinese are like, oh, yeah, come on in. Oh, it'll be great. Meanwhile, they're looking at each other out of the corner of their eye like we know exactly what these people are doing. This is not happening again. But let them come in. We'll take the profits. We'll let them think they're fooling us and we'll fool them. As it should be. If you are foolish enough to think that you're fooling somebody who is not being fooled, you deserve. Uh, do you deserve what you get? I don't know what you deserve, but it's fair. All's fair in love and economics, in love and commerce, in love and war. So then there's this thing the Chinese do what any normal group of people who start to kill it start to really do well what they would they start to think man you know it's good to be better feels good that things are getting better oh look at that we're number two that's nice hmm number two what about number one that's you're not gonna be with number one i mean the united states is number one come on nobody wants that I don't want that. Of course, why would I want to take the gold medal, the crown, all of the global power and prestige and fun from that guy who's already got it over there? I'm sure he deserves it. I'm sure he deserves it. Now, of course... No, you get to number two, you aim for number one. That's unrestricted warfare. This thing that sort of leaked, sort of didn't leak, just, it was published, just a couple of colonels from the PLA are like, hey, you know, we watched the Gulf War. Pretty sure we're going to have to, like, use some unconventional tactics here. We're not, this is no longer a boxing match. This is like MMA, no holds barred, <laughs> even fighting before you get in the cage sort of thing, or they're just going to, wallop us they're just, these guys are not messing around they've got they're way ahead on technology they're way ahead on strategy with that technology and they've got a great economy if we want to and also like i think they knew because they're such a large country they're so resource rich china they're so historically wealthy i mean they've had such a successful history overall 
over the 3,600 whatever odd years that it's been since the, they started writing things down, they, you know, they said that, I don't know where I read this, one of the two books I was reading today, probably in key. Um, they saw the, the conflict with the United Yeah, conflict with the United States is inevitable. This is way before the, these modern things, the late 90s or, and, and 2000s writings from PLA, uh, former PLA officials about unrestricted warfare in the 100-year marathon that we talked about yesterday. They knew. They knew they were coming up. Maybe the United States didn't know. Maybe our people didn't recognize it. But so what? Of course they wouldn't. Like, you know, you never see the scrappy young upstart, you know, in your time coming for you until you get hit in the mouth, right? That's kind of what's starting to happen in the last 10 years or so. Different people started to anticipate it at different times. But just as many people in 2005 were saying China was about to collapse under its own weight as we're saying they're coming for our lunch. So, so we've got unrestricted warfare, which scared a lot of people, but it doesn't scare me. I'm not afraid. No, I'm totally afraid of it. Don't unrestricted warfare on me. I'm just saying it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't seem to me like this came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. Sun Tzu, art of war. Don't, it's just how much common sense can we apply to fighting wars? That's what Sun Tzu is. Read it. It's just how much can we get all the dumb ideas out of our dumb heads and just Restrict ourselves to that magic secret sauce, secret rice, soy sauce, common sense applied to war. That's what Sun Tzu is. Sun Tzu would, a reader of Sun Tzu would not be surprised by unrestricted warfare. Nor the 100-year marathon. Anybody, anybody who's ever competed for anything would not be su surprised by the, the, the China dream. Let's, let's be number one. <gasps> Did you hear that? China wants to be number one? How could they? That's so dishonest. They're so sneaky that they want to do that win in this competition that we're clearly winning. What a bunch of sneaky bad guys. Nah, I'm not feeling that. This is normal. This makes sense to me. This makes perfect sense to me. But... I don't want it. I don't want World War III. Nobody does. we got to find a way around it. Thucydides' Trap. Have I talked about Thucydides' Trap? The Harvard guy? What's his name? Graham, I think. His idea is that you can... Thucydides was a Greek historian who wrote about the Peloponnesian War between Sp Athens and Sparta, and basically it was a, it was a rising and, and established power sort of dynamic as well. And basically he's, his, the argument of his book, which is modern... Uh, and it's about China and the U.S. is that they need China and the U.S. need to avoid this trap. And it's been it's and there are historical examples of this um, of, of successfully avoiding a a Thucydides trap of a rising power threatening a, a, a an established power. And you know they don't have to go to war. Um, but but anyway, that's too much to take on right now. Uh, okay, let's let's say that's it. The 100-Year Marathon was like a 2009 China... It was in the book The China Dream. We talked about that. Although the idea might have been printed in 2005. But anyway, it makes perfect sense if you... To me, it makes sense. And that brings us up to, well, more or less, 2012 when Xi Jinping takes over. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. This has been Retrace, segment number 48 for Saturday, November 12, 2022. Um, we'll be on again tomorrow, same time, 11 p.m. 
APM specific. All references will be in the PDF notes, retrace.com, R-E-T-R-A-I-C-E.com. See you next time. Signing off.